Development Policy Centre podcast. In this episode, you will hear the 2018 Australasian Aid Conference opening address by Penny Wong. In it, she discusses Labor's vision for Australian aid and development policy if they are elected to government in the next federal election. We hope you enjoy this podcast. Uh, Thanks very much for that. Um, uh, May I begin on this, the 10th anniversary of the apology to the Stolen Generation, with a a particularly heartfelt welcome uh, acknowledgement of country. We stand on the lands of the Ngunnawal and Ngambri peoples and we pay our respects to elders past and present. Uh, To uh, Ryan, thank you for the introduction. I didn't realise I was taking Q&A because tactics has been held for me, but that's okay. (laughs) You know, we go with the flow. Uh, To Stephen, who's uh, I think one of uh, Australia's great contributors and intellects when it comes to development, thank you for the opportunity to speak with you uh, all this morning, ANUN. Uh, the Asia Foundation uh, are really to be congratulated for your work in this area uh, and I hope that this conference continues that uh, forensic examination and creative thinking about development. So Shadow Foreign Minister, I've been seeking to lay out a framework for Labor's foreign policy that is one of purpose, energy and conviction that protects and advances our national interests and protects, projects our identity and standing in the world. And of course, I agree with Brian that a central aspect of such a foreign policy is development assistance. Put simply, development assistance is central and will be central to the way in which Labor would realise its foreign policy. In refining our approach, I've had the invaluable assistance of Senator Claire Moore, uh, another shadow minister in my portfolio, and a range of Labor colleagues, Julian Hill, Madeleine King, Sharon Clayton, Lisa Singh, Tim Watts, Josh Wilson, Peter Kill, Khalil, Mike Freelander and Milton Dick. Uh, they've consulted uh, widely, uh, probably with some many of you, and I've drawn on their work in preparing not only this morning's presentation, but I intend to use it as some of the foundational material as we develop our policy in the lead-up to the election. As public policymakers, we must ask ourselves, how do we maintain public support for development assistance and increase the public's confidence that the funding achieves its purpose? Purpose deals with the question why, and the why of foreign policy really is the same as the why of all public policy. The realisation of our national interests informed by our values, that is what we stand for. I outlined Labor's interests and values in presentations I delivered last year to the Lowy Institute and also to Griffith University. Our national interests are the security of the nation and its people, the economic prosperity of the nation and its people, a stable, cooperative, strategic system in our our region anchored in the rule of law and, of course, constructive internationalism. And our values, compassion, equity, inclusion, mutual respect and and more, find expression in the rule of law that is the basis of our democratic practice, the contract between government and the people. So the answer to the question, why do we invest in development assistance, is because it is unquestionably in Australia's interests to create a more stable and secure world by helping reduce reduce poverty, improve health and education and fight inequality. And how do we do this? We do this by building social and human capital. It's a lovely ring. (laughs) For a democratic, caring and generous nation like Australia, international development assistance has long been a central element of our foreign policy consistent with our values and our national interests. 
We have a deep interest in and commitment to the maintenance of stability in our region and to reducing poverty where we can. And if the generosity that is a natural consequence of our respect for our shared humanity is not sufficient motivation, we should recognise too the economic and security consequences of instability and of poverty. These consequences are not only borne by the individual communities and nations affected, but in an in increasingly interconnected world they impact on us all. Failure to recognise this is profoundly short-sighted. Moreover, the decision by the Abbott and Turnbull governments to walk away from international development assistance funding, I would argue, undermines our national interests. So I can make this commitment today. A Labor government will rebuild Australia's international development assistance program and accordingly will increase investment beyond the current levels. The Coalition's attack on the development assistance budget has been tantamount to vandalism. It has not only impugned our reputation as an active and generous supporter of our neighbours in the region, but even more significantly, it has worked actively against our foreign policy interests. We, just give, we give just 22 cents in every $100 of our national income to development assistance. This is the lowest level since records were kept. Now, we have previously called on the Coalition to join us in a bipartisan commitment to rebuilding Australia's aid and development programs. We've sought this because we understand the human costs of the $11.3 billion in cuts. These are cuts that affect the lives of people who can least afford it. We all understand that reduced international development assistance leads to less development, poorer health outcomes, more poverty and, more, and greater deprivation. In particular, we know that such cuts translate to more maternal deaths, fewer vaccinated children, fewer girls in schools, and greater numbers of vulnerable communities experiencing disproportionately the impacts of climate change. So with this in mind, I can say to you today, with confidence, a shortened Labor government will contribute more to international development assistance than the current government, and we will ensure more of it gets to the people who, is, who it is meant to be assisting. We will, to the fullest extent that financial circumstances allow, rebuild and grow the aid program in a timely manner, because our intention is that it once again reflects the generosity of the Australian people. So I again encourage the government to return to a properly bipartisan approach to international development assistance, because their current budgeted levels, which will see a relative decline, are really not defensible. As you know, poverty is the red column of the economic inequality ledger. A stream of studies continue to demonstrate that at the national level, economic equality, inequality has grown across the globe. In its 2016 study, An Economy for the 1%, Oxfam showed that the richest 1% now own more than the rest of the world combined. In 2015, 62 individuals had the same wealth as 3.6 billion people. In the previous decade and a half, the bottom half of humanity gained just 1% of the total increase in global wealth, while 50% went to the top 1%. So whilst development assistance will continue to be critical if structural inequality is to be addressed effectively, we do know that it alone doesn't fix the problem, and it will need to be accommodated, or continue to be accommodated, between a broader framework of economic management that recognises and takes into account matters like trade liberalisation, lending and investment practices, and international cooperation to address multinational tax avoidance. At the ACFID conference in November last year, I spoke about how global inequality and the poverty it generates cannot be addressed simply as a function of economic growth. In the current climate, it is even more apparent that for growth to have wide benefits, it must take into account distribution. 
The ANU's Development Policy Centre produces excellent work on development assistance and its surveys suggest that whilst the Australian community is uncertain about the levels of funding and the results achieved, it continues to support development funding. Well, as you know, in this area, as in any public policy area, public support is critical. In our nearby region, demand for assistance far outstrips the capacity of donors, both government and NGO, to deliver. The flow of Rohingya refugees to Bangladesh imposes enormous demands on, on a country that is struggling to meet its own development goals. Refugee flows resulting from ongoing armed conflict in Syria and in Yemen continue to strain international agencies and aid donors. Many parts of Africa are in crisis as a result of civil war, consequent displacement of populations and drought. And the 65 million people who are currently displaced globally surpass the number of those displaced after World War II during and after. Meeting demand has been made enormously more difficult as a result of the coalition's cuts. But even when we do as a nation return to historical levels of international development assistance, the need is greater than our ability to meet demand. It is for this reason amongst others we see the emergence of new, donor, new development assistance donors and new approaches to financing. It is important that new donors and new approaches are sensitive to the on-ground needs of the recipients and that projects are carefully calibrated to the ability of recipients both to absorb and maintain the assistance provided. This is particularly important if assistance is provided in the form of soft loans. Such loans must reflect the recipient's ability to service them. The need for our neighbours, the need of our neighbours for assistance and advice on the provisions of all forms of development assistance didn't wane when the Australian Government abound abandoned the development assistance priorities laid down by successive governments since the 1970s. If anything, the nature and pace of economic and social developments and challenges in our region accelerated just at the time as the coalition governments pulled back. So it's unsurprising that our neighbours seek assistance from other countries and other institutions. Countries will do so. Seek assistance and support for their development priorities wherever they can, and donors will respond to such requests as they see fit because there is far greater unmet demand and scope for all forms of development assistance than can ever be met by a single country or institution, no matter how large. What has become clear is the need for greater efforts to coordinate the design and delivery of development assistance programs across our region, both to protect against duplication and to ensure that the programs delivered and their associated financing packages meet the needs of recipients. Greater dovetailing of assistance activities will certainly generate greater efficiencies at a time when funding levels are under pressure. So how would Australia's development assistance program operate in this environment? Well, first of all, Labor accepts that the UN-mandated Sustainable Development Goals provide a guide to development assistance outcomes. They offer a framework for implementing the grand bargain struck by major aid organisations and donors at their meeting in Istanbul in 2016. The grand bargain recognised that the status quo is no longer an option. We need to find and create efficiency, which in turn demands innovation, collaboration and changed mindsets. And central to change mindsets is a focus on social and human capital, because when they increase, poverty reduces. Secondly, Labor will work to ensure that development and delivery mechanisms are streamlined. At the ACFID conference last November, I put on record Labor's disagreement with the decision to terminate AusAid and move its functions into DFAT. It was a, a deeply counterintuitive decision, 
But I also said that the egg can't be unscrambled and that we'll have to do what we can to ensure that it works. Senator Moore and the aid team of backbenchers uh, that I've outlined has consulted, Lee, has consulted widely with the international development assistance sector. And I would say this to you, the sector expressed to us a great many problems. They identified problems, structural inadequacies, management failings, DFAT's growing dependence on managing contractors as its own expertise and skills have declined. One stakeholder commented, you can't outsource your brain, that's what DFAT tries to do. <laughs> I report that without comment. <laughs> okay. We have listened carefully to the sector's comments and ideas, and in, in government we would ask the, the department to address them. This will also entail ongoing consultation with recipients. We do need to ensure that DFAT is fit for purpose in its capability and management of its international development assistance responsibilities, and I'm sure that the department's leadership would agree. Thirdly, we need to recognise that the various outcomes identified by the SDGs are interlinked, and, that's what happens in one and that what happens in one target area may affect other target areas in quite profound ways. To illustrate that, I want to look briefly at four particular streams of development assistance, and they are climate change, health, gender and education. In the November 2017 Conference of the Parties in Bonn, Fiji and the World Bank released their climate vulnerability assessment, which highlighted the fact that climate change presents poverty reduction with even more formidable odds. The assessment acknowledges that Fiji is already exposed to large natural risks, but that climate change is likely to amplify these risks. This threatens the objectives of Fiji's National Development Plan. The vulnerability assessment predicted that by 2050, in excess of 30,000 Fijians will be pushed into poverty every year as a result of floods and tropical cyclones. But of course, Fiji is not the only country in this position. If you look at the World Bank OECD report, Climate and Disaster Resilience Financing from February 2017, you see the following facts. Vanuatu, which receives $69.8 million in ODA from Australia, loses over 50 million or 6.6% of annual GDP due to natural disasters. Tonga suffers a 4.4% loss of annual GDP, some $17 million. And both Fiji and the Solomon Islands incur losses above 2.6% and nearly 3% of GDP, respectively, as a result of natural disasters, amounting to over $150 million each year. So far, Development Assistance Program is seeking to grow the social and human capital that enables people to be lifted or lift themselves out of poverty whilst the consequences of climate change continue to under undermine that outcome. Then clearly disaster risk reduction must become a more prominent, prominent feature of our development assistance planning. The fact is, climate change impacts every aspect of our aid program, such that we cannot be serious about tackling poverty in our region if we are not serious about tackling climate change. The 2014 report that the WHO released forecast in, that climate change will cause an additional 250,000 deaths per annum between 2030 and 2050, 38,000 from heat exposure, 60,000 from malaria, 48,000 from diarrhoea, and 95,000 from malnutrition. Yet the regional effects of climate change have largely been ignored by the coalition, although I do note uh, Ms Bishop has sought quietly to maintain some programs. Yet they constitute an existential threat to many states, and we need to invest in building the national resilience, the capaci their capacity to deal uh, with the challenge that climate change represents. 
because of course what happens in the Pacific affects us. If we want a stable and prosperous region, we have to confront its realities. And the cynicism of Peter Dutton's remarks, time doesn't mean anything when you're about to have water lapping at your door, reminds us just how far this government needs to travel if it is to understand this basic fact. Health is an area in which Australia can make a real difference. Yet here again, support has been withdrawn. Development assistance investment in health sits at just over 13% of our current aid program. When Labor was last in government, health accounted for 17% within a significantly larger funding pool. There have, however, been some indications from the Foreign Minister that Australia's development assistance program is beginning to take health more seriously, and I welcome that. In recent weeks, we've seen the Minister accept a position on the End Malaria Council, and the long-awaited Health Security Initiative for the Indo-Pacific region is developing. But, there are, like the questionable innovation exchange, this initiative does look, at the moment, somewhat bureaucratic and disconnected from the research centres and delivery systems that already exist in Australia. I do want to say that I am convinced by the need for greater innovation in our international development program. I am, however, unconvinced that the innovation exchange model is the right one. Leaving aside the unfortunate emphasis on celebrity and an apparent fascination with beanbags, <laughs> I do question whether it adds a sufficiently ambitious degree of innovation to our aid program. There seems to be some view that innovation comprises a series of light bulb moments, rather than recognising the merit of creative and dynamic partnerships that bring a wide range of perspectives to problem solving. Certainly the feedback from many outstanding research bodies here in Australia would suggest there is much more to offer from collaboration than we are currently attaining. The Innovation Exchange also operates in what appears to be relative isolation, not only in its location, but in its impact on the aid program. So we do want to... We do want, if elected, to make a much more considered approach as to how innovation can be integrated across our aid program. The Australian health research community's expertise lends itself well to the Indo-Pacific Health Security Initiative. We can hope that with the awarding of both the health policy research proposals and the product development partnership funding programs later this year, our aid program will improve as a result of the Australian scientific community's engagement. Because health, along with education, is of course a fundamental contributor uh, to development. Chronic but preventable ill health is a showstopper with respect to economic participation and without economic participation, individuals and communities are consigned to continued poverty. And you, as I wrote on the development policy blog late last year, poor health outcomes self-evidently hinder economic development. For example, one of the biggest challenges facing our region is child stunting due to poor and unhygienic nutrition. I wonder how many Australians know that's 60% of children in Timor-Leste, 44% of children in PNG, a third of the children in Kiribati and 26% of the children in Vanuatu are stunted. All preventable. And despite many countries and regions improving nutrition levels as they meet the MDGs, we have seen no substantial improvement in the Pacific since the 1990s. The Pacific and Timor-Leste have incredibly young populations and without health interventions at an early age, the potential quality of life for individuals and the future economic development of the region will be severely diminished before many of these children have even started school. Addressing the health needs of children in the region has a strong return on investment 
and of course intervention in children's health, health reduces a future cost on a recipient country's health infrastructure. According to Save the Children, specific nutrition interventions can deliver a return on investment of $16 to $1, double the return of aid for trade investments. Yet according to the 2015 Office for Development Effectiveness Report into Child Undernutrition, nutrition programs account for only 2.4% accounted for only 2.4% of the spend in the previous financial year. So within the aid budget, we need to sharpen our focus on child health, particularly in the Pacific, where immunisation coverage remains lower than other areas of the Indo-Pacific. We need the low availability and use of the Hib vaccine is of real concern, and in Southeast Asia there is 80% coverage compared with 28% in the West Pacific region. So we need to do more to engage with governments and multilateral funds such as Gavi to improve the health outcomes of our children in the region of children in our region. When I spoke at ACFID, I also said Labor would seek to build on the work that the current government has done in bringing gender to the forefront of our aid program. Of course, the focus on the, on, on the empowerment of women must also address structural factors, factors, because it is structural factors which allow discrimination that causes gender inequality. And if we don't address them, we find, risk find ourselves, finding ourselves in the scenario we've had in PNG during the recent election, where despite having a record number of female candidates, many of whom were supported by Australia's aid program, and I support that, we saw no women elected. Achieving change takes time and our funding cycles also need to reflect this. And there are also continuing health challenges facing women. Labor in government will seek to build on the current government efforts to achieve 80% of programming targeted at improving the equality of women and girls. We know that the maternal death rate in Pacific and Timor-Leste remains unacceptably high and they can be reduced. That can be reduced through properly funded sexual health and family planning programs. This is an area of programming which has experienced turbulent changes as a result of the global gag rule, which Murray Stopes International claims has resulted in the deaths of nearly 7,000 women and girls due to entirely avoidable maternal health complications. We must also not forget that upon coming to government, the Australia's family planning program was cut by 40% by the coalition. I do note uh, and support last year's pledge by the Ambassador for Women and Girls for an additional funding of $33.5 million over four years. Cervical cancer rates in the Pacific are amongst the highest in the world. Women in the Pacific are dying at the rate of up to nine times that of Australian due to the fact that screening is not available. In the Pacific, uh, the incidence of cervical cancer rests between 13.3% to 13.3 and 37.8 per 100,000. And sadly for these women, the diagnosis of cancer obviously comes, often comes too late. Given our leadership in HPV development and subsidised public immunisation, there's genuine hope that the virus can be eradicated. We can and should try to have a much bigger impact. Besides health, education is another pillar on which social and human capital are built. At present, we dedicate $675 million of our ODA funding to education. This does compare unfavourably with the Labor government's investment in education in 2012, when 21% of, again, a much bigger development assistance budget was earmarked for education. In an ODA assistance budget totaling $5.2 billion, education attracted over a billion dollars. In a report published in May last year, UNESCO demonstrated 
that globally development assistance in education plateaued in 2010 and has been stagnating ever since. This is due in part to the reallocation of development assistance funds to refugee assistance permissible under the aid rules, and in part also to the decline of aid funding in the aftermath of the GFC. Under this government, we've seen a continued decline in education funding, including the reduction of its already low contribution to the Global Partnership for Education by a further $50 million. But if developing countries are to develop the social and human capital necessary to develop, education must be a principal target. Because together with health, education, particularly education for women and girls, is just so important. And I say to you today, it will be a hallmark of our approach to development assistance policy in government. The coalition's unprecedented cuts to development assistance over the last four years have caused great harm and they have caused great harm to some of the poorest people in our region. They have also impugned our reputation internationally and I would argue have undermined our national interests. They have harmed our efforts to alleviate poverty and to make our region safer and more secure and they have diminished our standing in the region. And they also, I firmly believe, are at odds with the generous spirit of the Australian people. That is why Labor considers we must and can do better. So I have pledged to you today that Labor and Government will rebuild our International Development Assistance Program and increase investment beyond current levels. But to be frank with you, what I would much prefer is to take all the politics out of aid and have the Government join, join with us in a bipartisan commitment to rebuilding Australia's aid and development programs. And I fervently hope that we can once more commit, as we both did, during the 2013 election, to a shared and non-partisan goal to improve Australia's record on development assistance for the sake of all those who live in poverty, and especially those children whose lives are stunted by poverty, poor health, or lack of education. Thank you very much. Thank you, Senator Wong. I think the audience is going to take great heart at your uh, comprehensive uh, analysis of uh, development aid, and uh, certainly this group is uh, clearly keen to help uh, with that based on evidence and experience, and I think uh, you bringing uh, lots of evidence and, and strong ideas uh, to the fore, great. Now, uh, I did highlight that uh, we probably wouldn't be able to have Q&A because you need to leave at 828 yes. and it's 828. But if you want to take one I'll or take two, okay, great. Over to you. Hands up if you want to ask uh, Senator Warren a question. Um, sorry, yep. I think just letting you know our roving mic isn't working. So just talk just yell. Now, yeah, right, yeah, please, in the red. Julia Tan, I'm an independent consultant. The current government is committed to funding for the animation and violence against women. Can you just... Uh, well, I thought I did seek to address, you mean the, the domestic program or internationally? Yeah, yes. Well, I mean, I, I thought I referenced that. We, we'd seek to build on uh, the programs that deal with um, women's inequality. The, the, the policy point I was seeking to make, though, was, uh, I suppose it's the difference between a liberal feminist and social democratic feminist. I actually think... <laughs> I actually think there are structural factors which you have to address as well, and and um, that there is 
it's not without purpose, without without merit, but I think addressing the empowerment of women in the abstract and and failing to recognise sufficiently in how you in how you design your programs that there are structural inequalities which bear upon gender equality is problematic. That was the point I was seeking to make. I clearly didn't make it very clearly. All right, we'll take one more question. And uh, in the back, white. Now you got you get you get a real. Usually in an audience, I have three men in a row is my rule, and then I say the next question has come from women. We've had two. This is, a, this is, oh, no, it's not about you, Brian. <laughs> Actually, it's about them. I'm, I'm giving them a compliment. Mar Marie Nutt from Results Australia. Uh, Senator Wong, thanks very much for your comments this morning, particularly the last ones about taking politics out of aid and yep. having a bi bipartisan approach. So taking a slight tangent, I wondered if you were concerned about the threats to civil society voice around this and bringing the public into, into the conversation about aid with the proposed charity legislation that's that's with the government at the moment. Well, uh, when I was finance minister, we had a policy, and in fact, I think I put it in legislation, but it was overridden, that we couldn't include gag or gag clauses in um, government funding arrangements, which I think this government has, has moved beyond. Uh, if you're talking about the foreign interference laws, yes, I mean, I'm on that committee, so the intelligence committee, so I, I try not to make too many public comments about it, but I would say that uh, the evidence given by the sector in public hearing demonstrated some real problems in the way the legislation has been drafted, and I welcome uh, Mr Porter, the, the new Attorney-General's, uh, delaying the uh, uh, the passage of that legislation or the consideration of that legislation through the parliament because I think that is one of a number of factors that need to be addressed. What I would say is this though more broadly on the issue of civil society and development assistance. We don't live in, um, you know, we live in what I've described and others have described as disrupted times and one aspect of that disruption uh, globally and here in Australia has been the rise of populism and nationalism and that's well documented. We could have a long discussion about that. How that translates into the aid discussion here in Australia is you have voices uh, inside the parliament uh, who are strongly advocating against any development assistance uh, and uh, consequently and... Um, concomitantly, you have voices inside the coalition who are advocating against any development assistance. Now, I, I place on record that, you know, whilst Ms Bishop hasn't been able to defend the budget uh, from all cuts, I'm, you know, she has said and done as much as uh, she, she has been able. Uh, if we are going to rebuild our development assistance budget, which I think is actually in our national interest, and it will take a long time. Stephen Howes did, a, I think, an article last year which actually calculated some of the effect in the forward estimates. Uh, that will require support from both parties of government, ultimately, at least from some people within it. And the problem we have at the moment is too much of that populism and we shouldn't be sending any money offshore line from Ms Hansen and others gets too much traction. And that's a job for all of us. Thank you very much. You have been listening to a podcast from the Development Policy Centre. For more information on our work, visit our website at devpolicy.anu.edu.au. To join the conversation on Australian aid, Papua New Guinea, the Pacific and global development policy, visit our blog at devpolicy.org. At the blog, you can also sign up to our newsletter to get all the latest updates, or you can connect with us on social media. Thanks for listening. 